0: What is going on with Canadian conservatism today? If you read the National Post, you read the Globe and Mail, you read some intelligent commentators online, a lot of good, smart people on Twitter writing about this topic, the conservatives are desperate for big ideas. There's a call for a return to philosophy. We don't just need a new leader. We don't just need more of the same policies. We need a new vision for the future, a new project. So let me tell you what I think about that. I agree. Conservatism does need, does need to return to the philosophical questions. So what are we going to do? We're going to go back to Locke? We're going to go back to Burke? We're going to go back to Thatcher and Reagan? Or what? Yeah, let's go back. But let's go way back. Way, way, way back. To before even the era of the great monotheisms. Let's go back to Plato, Aristotle, classical political philosophy. You may find this hard to believe. You may find this hard to understand. Long before Don Cherry, long before Stephen Harper, and long before almost anybody you can think of, before there was a Muhammad, before there was a Jesus, possibly before there was Moses, okay? For a long time, there have been people dealing With political life, political questions, and political problems. The family, relationship between the sexes, production, consumption, cataclysms, the start and end of political cycles, justice, war and peace, power, the administration of offices, the distribution of offices, and the distribution of honors. These are all issues that we care deeply about today if we think about political life. And they're all questions that matter deeply today to to our political life. And for thousands of years, there have been people thinking about these questions. Not since the Enlightenment, since long before then. If you've read any Plato, or if you've heard of Plato, maybe you know the Republic and very loosely something like Philosopher Kings. Plato thought that philosophers should be kings and kings should be philosophers. Well, Plato said much more than that. He wrote more works than the Republic, although the Republic wouldn't be a bad work to study, but specifically, the work that he wrote in his old age, I mean, his last work, as far as we know, is The Laws, The Laws of Plato. And I think that The Laws should become the blueprint for a new Canadian conservatism. Whoa, what? What did I just say? Blueprint for a new Canadian conservatism? Well, let me explain. The Laws presents what the character in that work calls politics as the art of caring for souls. So conservatives are looking to return to big ideas. Are they going to be big ideas about pipelines? Are they going to be big ideas about the economy? Are they going to be big ideas about how to please various interest groups of this or that minority? No, I think if conservatism wants to have a deep philosophical foundation and a meaningful set of big ideas, it doesn't necessarily have to be philosophical in its most uh, public platform, but the people in the party should be thinking philosophically, and they should be aware of a vision of politics That is about something comprehensive, something grand, ennobling, and, dare I say, even transcendental to a certain extent. But at the same time, that's coupled with a lot of common sense, which we don't have any anymore. You know that. A well-meaning, fine-looking, normal, heterosexual Christian family is regarded as white, nationalist, fascist, racist, reincarnations of Hitler, Satan, spawn of... Lucifer, okay, a very bad thing. Whereas if you have some drugged out prostitute, horrible, terrible person who's just vulgar and wearing a G-string in your face, she's like he or she or the cross-gendered appropriate pronoun is the perfect angel to have reading books to your five-year-old kids in the public library. That's good. The Christian family is bad. That's a topsy-turvy world. Although we should think about the preconditions. How did we get there? What made that possible? What ideas did we have to have about the sexes and the sexual difference as the origin of the division of labor? And if you're trying to overcome the division of labor, like a Marxist, then you have to overcome the sexual difference. How do you do that? Well, you you start to think about the preconditions of these social maladies, and you get, you get a sense for the importance that ideas play in this whole movement. Well, when you read Plato's Laws, you have a picture of the world that is far from us, and it's a return both to sound political sense, sound common sense, political common sense. Let me say that again. It's a return to sound political common sense, and at the same time, this ennobling view of political life. The Laws, like all of Plato's works, is a dialogue. It presents characters speaking to one another. Most often, the main character in Plato's dialogues is Socrates. Because Plato was so impressed with Socrates that he dedicated his life to depicting the life of Socrates. And Socrates' arguments with people who claim to possess wisdom. And when Socrates interrogates them, cross-examines them, he sees that most often they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Also very relevant today, by the way. The conversations that he has with these people are observed by some young people who follow Socrates around and who follow these other people around and they're impressionable and these conversations that he has with these people leave an impression on them that their ruling classes don't know what the hell they're talking about and the poets who claim to be so wise about politics because they can rhapsodize about law and war and peace also don't know what the hell they're talking about. And it turns out that Socrates is the wisest man because he alone understands the depths of his ignorance, whereas everybody else thinks they know what's what, but they don't. So Socrates is usually the main character in Plato's dialogues, but in the laws, it's an unnamed Athenian, could be Socrates, unnamed Athenian called the Athenian stranger, is speaking to two old Greek men one from Crete and one from Sparta. So three old Greeks, Athenian, Cretan, and Spartan. He's visiting them. And they're going to have a conversation about law, about the origin of law, the goal of law, about their own legal regimes, why they were set up the way they were set up. And if you were to legislate for a colony from scratch, what legal code would you put into place for it to be the best? They elaborate a set of arguments. Specifically, the Athenian stranger elaborates a set of proposals about law in general and in its specifics. How does this work begin? Begins with a very beautiful question. Tempted to pull it off the shelf and read it to you. Begins with a very beautiful question. The Athenian stranger asks, the first line of this wonderful work, he asks, is it a God or a man that you credit with giving you the law? So is your law a human code of law or do you trace it to a divine lawgiver? Now, before we even take a step further, that is not some outrageous, out-of-the-ordinary, unicorn, somehow non-existent, who-could-possibly-care type question. A lot of people today trace their understanding of law, the law that they follow, the law that they believe in, to a divine lawgiver, whether it's Moses or whether it's Mohammed. The divine law is a relevant topic today. And here we go, Plato opening the laws of Plato with this question, who do you say give your, your code of law, And both of these uh, Cretan and Spartan did trace their law code to a divine lawgiver, and so one of them says, "To a God, Athenian, uh, to a God, to say what is most just." The conversation begins with the topic of old men talking about the divine nature of their law and the correct way to speak about it, to get the just answer, the respectful answer is to say that a god gave your code of law. You see? So you might think, Michael Millerman is telling Canadian conservatives that if they want big ideas, they should turn to Plato, and especially to Plato's laws. And yet, I'm also telling you that Plato's laws opens with the question of the divine law and traces the origin of law to a god. Uh Uh-oh, I must be a theocrat who wants to do a complete religious revival of Canadian political theology so that it also traces its origin and its purpose back to God. Well, not so fast, because in only a few pages, everything is turned upside down. I'll tell you how. Plato says, not Plato, sorry, the, his character, the Athenian stranger, says, Tell me, you're well known for having these legal customs that you have you, all your men eat together. They're public meals. Men share public meals. They don't eat like you and I probably do in our, in our homes or out at a restaurant. They, they gather together and they eat They gather together and they eat in public. And they also have other customs that the the Athenian stranger asks about. He says, what did your lawgiver have in mind when he established these laws and customs? The Cretan answers that the lawgiver had in mind victory in war. He legislated for the sake of victory in war. The goal that the god had in mind with this code of law was victory in war. That's the highest good, military victory martial virtue. The Athenian stranger begins to ask some questions. He says, you tell me that every city is always at war with every other city. Well, is that also true of households? Are they always at war with other households? And are individuals always at war with other individuals? Incidentally, we're on about page five. You know, we're very early in the conversation here, and already the Athenian stranger is reviewing this Hobbesian or Hobbes's thesis of the constant war of man against man, the war of, of, of all against all, this idea that there's a perpetual state of war always among individuals, among households, and among countries. This is, you think that's new with Hobbes? This is what they, the Cretans, say is the case that their lawgiver was legislating for. And here the Athenian stranger saying, wait a minute, let's think about it. And in the course of a number of arguments, he brings them to the realization that, Good legislation must be for the sake of peace. And suddenly the Cretans thinking, well, hang on a second. My, my God gave me this code of law and my understanding as an old wise citizen, not as some young punk, as this old wise citizen, is that the law was given for the sake of victory in war. And here you are telling me that victory in war is a relatively low aim compared to some other aims because cur- ver- courage, Military courage is a relatively low-ranking virtue compared to justice, moderation, and wisdom. Aren't we sort of insulting the divine lawmaker? And the Athenian stranger says, no, we're, we insult ourselves when we imagine that a god could have legislated above all things for the sake of victory in war, you see? So the presentation of the divine nature of the law, as well as the critique of a certain understanding of that, This is in the first 10 pages of a 500-page book written by probably the most brilliant man ever to have lived in Western civilization, okay? If you think that's hyperbole, maybe a little bit, but think about what we owe to the name Plato. You can count such illustrious names on one hand, probably on one finger. And here's somebody analyzing for us all of these nuances, vital nuances about law, its purpose, its origin, courage, justice, moderation, wisdom, what the lawmaker must know, What we who interpret the law must understand of this. And this conversation is just something to behold. And more importantly than that, it's something for us to learn from. Alexander Dugan, you know, I work on him. Probably you know. I translate his books. I've written a lot of essays about him. I've made many videos about him. Some people like him. Some people can't stand him. What's important is this. Whatever your opinion of Dugan is, he has a brilliant idea called the Platonic Minimum. The idea of the platonic minimum is that nobody should be in politics who hasn't read at least some Plato. You can't drive a car without a license. I don't think you can cut hair without a license. You can't be an interior decorator without a license, from what I understand. There are many things you can't do without some minimum. Well, in political life, you can't operate and function without having read some Plato. It's the blueprint It's the foundations, it's what's fundamental, whether you depart from it eventually or not. Progressivism, liberalism, nihilism, fascism, communism. Somehow everything stems, whether positively or as a rejection of it, from Plato, from an understanding of Plato. You think George Soros is a puppet master behind the world? Then you should understand the relationship between George Soros and Karl Popper, the theorist of the open society, Who took as his prime enemy, Plato. So without an understanding of Plato, you're blind, deaf, and dumb in political life. Nothing against the blind, deaf, and dumb. Let me put it differently. You just are unequipped to deal with political problems. So Canadian conservatives, listen now, listen up. I implore you, this is for your benefit, for our country's benefit, and it's an honor that we owe to our heritage. It's an honor that we owe to the great legacy of Western civilization. It's an honor that we owe to Plato who took the time to put these thoughts on paper for us so long ago. He's not the only one, but you could hardly do better than to start with him. Read Plato, study the laws, Canadian conservatism. You got to go way back if you want to have a future. And if you do it well, you might even have a future rooted in the eternal. I'm Michael Millerman. This is Millerman Talks. Thank you very much for watching. Canadian conservatives, you want some big ideas? You want a philosophy? I'm telling you, classical political philosophy, knock and the door shall be opened for you. Think about it.